Welcome to the Revo Podcast. Revo Church is one church in two locations with a vision to spark a revolution of life change through Jesus. We hope to accomplish this through our core values of love big, serve hard, live bold, grow deep, and move forward. For more information about our service times and locations, please visit our website at discoverrevo.com. Every other Thanksgiving, I go to my in-law's house, and uh, we get to hang with Elizabeth's folks. And uh, in their city, they do this 5K race on Thanksgiving morning, uh, the turkey trot. And uh, so we always do that, always do that. Um, it's just a way to justify eating more on Thanksgiving. Like, I'm not a runner. I'm not surprised to look at me, but I'm not a runner. I'm not out there to prove a point. Like, I'm just out there so that when I'm eating another piece of pecan pie at lunch, I can be like, this is cool because I ran today, right? I ran a race this morning. And so we go out there early on Thanksgiving morning, and uh, as soon as I get there, I'm trying to size up the competition. You know, there's five or 600 people there that I'm competing against, uh, and uh, so I want to know. And there's some serious people that run these races. This is a 3.2-mile race. You wouldn't think this was serious. There's some serious people out there. I mean, they got like, they're out there stretching, okay? What? For three miles? Stretching. They got on like compression shorts and to make them faster. And like they're syncing their watches with the stopwatch that the, the race people are using. And like, I just rolled out of bed. Like, I got on a t shirt and a pair of gym shorts. One of my shoes isn't even tied. And like, these people are stretching with elastic pants on like what are you doing this is the turkey trot and so like I'm sizing it up and my father-in-law's there and so he's pointing out being from that area he's pointing out people that he knows and like saying you know this is he lives here and this this guy owns a business over here and this a neighbor of mine he goes to my church and and all of a sudden this this older guy walks past me and and uh my father-in-law Mr. Atkins he, he taps me he said that guy right there is 83 years old and he runs every day and he's got kind of a bad hip, but he, even, even though with the hip problems that he's had, like he, this guy runs every single day. And you can see him. He runs on this bike path, this running path that goes through the middle of the city, and, and like everybody knows him. And, and so like we're just, I'm just looking at everybody and, and taking it all in. So the race starts, and uh, I'm starting, and, and we're running. And throughout the race, they have these little stations set up that are designed to kind of encourage you. Uh, they have volunteers that are handing out water. They're yelling out your time. Like, they're telling you you're doing great. And, and so they're, they're encouraging you throughout the way. And, and then at the very end, like, on the home stretch towards the finish line, it's where all the spectators go. And so my, my father-in-law would stand right there, and my wife would wake up a little bit later, and she would uh, bring the girls out there and, and to, to cheer us on. And so I'm running the race, and, and I turn this, the home stretch, kind of, and I can see the finish line way off in the distance, and, and then I see my family. And so my girls are yelling. They're like, let's go, Dad. We love you. Like, they have no concept that I'm in the back half of the race. Like, I'm winning in their mind. They're like, you're going to do it. And then Elizabeth's like, don't hurt yourself. Just please don't hurt yourself. And then I hear my father-in-law say something. He says, don't let that old man beat you. And I look up, and between me and the finish line is the 83-year-old man with the bad hip. And I start to panic. I'm like, how did this happen? I did not see him pass me. And then I start thinking about what my father-in-law is going to say to me. 
for the rest of my life if this 83-year-old man with the bad hip crosses the finish line before I do. And so it, there's just something that clicks inside of me. He's like, don't let that old man beat you. And I start sprinting. I have no idea how long my body's going to last, but I'm like, I start to get nervous. I'm like, am I going to have to compromise my character here? Am I going to have to push him down or trip him up? Am I going to have to cut him off? Am I going to have to grab his shoulder and pull him back so that I can get across the finish line? Like, what is going to happen? I just cannot handle the, uh, the ridicule from my family. So, like, I, I'm, it's too close to the finish line for comfort, but I finally pass him, and like, I take a deep breath right before I pass him because I don't want him to know that I'm breathing heavy and that I'm about to pass out. And so take a deep breath, hold my breath as I go by and pretend like I've already finished and I'm running it again. And um, so I finish in front of him, barely, I still got ridiculed for it the whole time, still. Remember that time that 83-year-old man with a bad hip almost beat you in the road race? And um, so they, different senses of encouragement um, to me throughout the race, different people calling out different things, challenging me, encouraging me, like, chastising me a little bit, and uh, man, just overall cheering. That kind of dynamic that you see on a road race is very similar to what the Apostle Paul does in the New Testament to all of the churches that he helped plant. So the Apostle Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. He would go into a city, start a church, raise up a group of leaders, teach them things about Jesus in the Bible, and then he would leave, leave it in their hands, and he would go to the next city and plant another church. And occasionally, he would check in on these churches. He'd check in, how's it going? Man, are you loving people? Are you serving? Are you acting like Jesus? Are you doing things that the church does together? Man, how are all of these things that I taught you going? And when he would hear back from them, he would write them a letter. And these letters are like the whole race all in, in, in one book. Because there are some times where Paul will write them and say, man, you guys are doing great Keep going, keep pushing, you you got a good pace, this is a good time, you're, you're reaching milestones and advancing in the course, this is great. Other times, Paul had to challenge them a little bit, hey, step it up, keep pushing it harder, you gotta, you got to speed up, you got to make it. Other times, Paul would flat out challenge them on things, and he would have this moment where he would say, don't let the old man with the bad hip beat you, okay? Like, that you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, you've lost lost sight of the goal. You've lost sight. And so he kind of instructs them and pushes them in that direction. And the passage that we're going to look at today, Paul, just in eight short verses, we're going to see all of those cheerleader aspects from Paul. He's writing this letter to this church in the city of Thessalonica. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians 4 or pull it up on your phone Bible or check out the big Bible on the screen behind me. But Paul is going to offer these words just like a coach or a spectator in a race to this church, this group of Christians that is running this race that God has called them to. Not just going to church, but being the church in this city of Thessalonica. So in verse 1, here's, here's what Paul says. He kind of changes gears from some things that he's been talking about in the past. And he says, as for other matters, let, let's talk about some other stuff, brothers and sisters, members of the church. We instructed you how to live a life in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So right from the very beginning, Paul comes in. He's like, hey, you're doing great. All that stuff we told you and everything you've been reading and, and the instructions that we left on you, you guys are killing it. You're doing, you're doing great. Keep 
moving. And then he kind of challenges him a little bit, but he says, hey, but you can do more. You can go more. You can go further. You can help more. You can aid more. You can become more and more like Jesus. You can keep serving others and keep living a selfless life. So he keeps pushing them and pushing them in, in that direction. And then, and then in verse 3, he kind of changes into a different aspect of the coach. It says this, It is God's will that you would be sanctified. Just flat out uses that language. It is God's will for you to be sanctified. This is by far the most frequently asked question that I get as a pastor from people. They want to know, what is God's will for my life? They've got a big decision to make or a job to take or should I get married or is this the right girl or the right guy or big financial decisions, should I move, what school should I go to? Like, Pastor Nathan, tell me, what is God's will for my life? How do I know what God wants me to do? And, and in clear black and white, I'm about to hook you up with the answer right here. Paul says, it is God's will for your life that you should be sanctified. Boom. There you go. Answered all your questions. Sanctified is just a churchy word for I want you to be more like Jesus. You want to know what God's plan, God's will, God's direction, the decisions that you make in your life. You want to know what that's like? Be more like Jesus. Jesus Paul says, I want you to talk like Jesus. I want you to act like Jesus. I want you to treat others like Jesus. I want you to be generous like Jesus. I want you to serve like Jesus. I want you to make decisions like Jesus would make. Like, I just want your life to look like Jesus. Here's what Paul is, in essence, saying, kind of what this series is all about. If you were to take a selfie of your life, I hope that you would look and see that your life looked a lot like Jesus. Like, you put them side by side. I don't know if you've ever taken a selfie with Jesus. I actually took a picture with Jesus. I didn't take a selfie. I had somebody with me. So I want to show you this picture that I took with Jesus one time. That's me on the right. Um, we were on the way to the beach with some friends. <laughs> we were on the way to the beach with some friends, and we passed this fortune teller business. And this fortune teller had a statue of Jesus in the front of her business. Okay, so we pulled over for that, right? So we pulled over, and like I wanted the people I was with, Paul was with me. I said, man, I want you to take a picture of me with Jesus Put my arm around him, and it was a good time. We had a good time. She didn't come out with a shotgun, so that was a plus. Uh, it is in South Carolina. And so, like, we were definitely in the front of her business um, taking pictures with Jesus. And, uh, but this picture is, is what Paul is saying. Not exactly this picture, but if you were to take a picture, your life versus Jesus' life, if you were to take a selfie, I'm not talking about do you have a beard like Jesus and are you rocking a robe with the hands like Jesus. I'm just saying, like, spiritually speaking, your attitudes, your actions, your generosity, your grace, your mercy. If you were to line up your life with the Jesus life, the life that Jesus lived that we know about in Scripture, how similar do they look? Paul says God's will for your life is that you would be sanctified, that your selfie would look just like Jesus' selfie, not on the outside, but spiritually speaking in, in all different areas of your life. So he challenges them in that area. What does it look like? What are the pictures? How similar are they? It is God's will that you should be sanctified. And here's how he breaks that down. Just in this one instance, let me give you an example of what that looks like. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Just laying it out straight 
forward, Paul lays out, and this series has been about laying out extremes, like you're either one or the other. This is what your life looks like, like Jesus, or it's on the opposite end. And taking a picture of your life, Paul says, one of the things that we are called to avoid, one of the things that I hope our lives are not marked by, is a life full of sexual immorality. And what we're going to talk about specifically this morning is the idea of lust. Who's fired up about that? Just me? Okay. So I need to give a, uh, a caveat. If you're a first-time guest here, I don't tell our crew what I preach ahead of time. So, like, don't think that last week I told them, hey, we're going to be preaching on lust, and they were like, oh, I know who to call right now. I'm going to invite them. They need to be here. That is not how it happened. They did not invite you to hear the lust sermon. They didn't know it. You didn't know it. Surprise. Welcome to Revo. Nobody knew it. Nobody knew it but me. But I think we're going to have some fun with this uh, because it's so crucial. Paul lays out like the danger, but he also lays out the cure in the same thing. He says, instead of living a life of sexual immorality driven by desires that are orchestrated by the lusts in our life, I want to challenge you to live a life of self-control. So there's the, the, the cause is immorality and lust, and the cure he already gives us is self-control. And so the uh, absolute definition of lust, this is interesting, it's, it's simply this, uncontrolled desires or appetites. Now, you can have a lust for power, you can have a lust for money, you can have a lust for control. Specifically in this text, Paul is going to hone in on this lust, this desire, this unquenchable thirst uh, for sexuality and sexual immorality that many people experience. And, and this is one of the things that I hear most about, about this type of topic. Um, people will say, hey, I have desires. You know, like lust is the uncontrolled, unbridled desires. I have desires, but hey, didn't God give me those? Like, isn't this the way that God made us? Like, didn't God make me to, to be attracted to certain things and to want certain things and to like certain things? And, and, like, that's the way God made me, and so you're telling me don't be the way God made me or don't like the way that God made me? Shouldn't I embrace the way that God made me and the, uh, the desires that, that he has innately created in us, just part of our makeup, part of our, our DNA? Well, let me tell you something about desires. I agree with you that God has given us certain desires that, that uh, are triggered with certain things that we look or smell or touch or hear or taste. Like They're associated with all those things. But here's what happened. God gives us desires but when sin entered the world, those desires were distorted. God gave you and I desires, but here's what those desires come with. God gave us specific instructions on how those desires were to be met. You and I have sexual desires. That's why God created marriage. One of the reasons why is so that we could take those desires that God has given us and enjoy them within the confines of marriage. Sin enters the world, and here's what happens. Every desire we try to meet outside of God's plan. The desires aren't bad. It's the system's broken. And now all of a sudden, all of these God-given, God-created things inside of our life, we're looking at ways outside of God's plan to meet them. And God says the way you can combat that is to actually be a man or a woman of self-control. Now you want to talk about a way that you could be different from the majority of the world that we live in? Exercise self-control. Like, that's not, that's not something that a lot of people have. That's not something, like, you don't look at a lot of people and be like, man, there are a lot of people around me that have self-control. 
Like they're watching what they say and what they eat and what they drink and what they do and where they go and what they watch. Like we're just a really self-controlled people. We're not. And this city was no different. The world that this church lived in was, was no different. And so desires aren't bad. That God didn't make a mistake when he gave us those desires. We just understand that sin has broken those things down. And that's the consequence of living the world that we live in. Another thing that we have to watch out for is what desires we feed in our life. Because here's what I know about desires. Either you can control your desires or your desires are going to control you. Like, that, that's it, man. Somebody's going to be in control. So either you can be in control or the things in your life can control you. Which is it going to be? And you have things that, like, we need to understand that whatever desires that you begin to feed, those desires grow. If you don't believe me that things you feed grow, look at your stomach, okay? Like, just look down right now. Oh, yeah, yeah, you've been feeding that. When you feed things, it grows. <laughs> and so you'll have people that say, no, the desire, I'm just going to feed it one time, or I don't feed it all the time. Like, or it's going to go away eventually. Like, there's no problem in just every now and then seeing it or looking at it or touching it or experiencing it or going outside. Like, 99% of the time I'm good and it's clean and it's pure, but that one time I'm going to feed it, it will not go away. The more you feed it, the bigger it gets. So are you controlling your desires or are your desires controlling you? It's the difference between self-control and sexual immorality. It's the, the result of what happens when unquenchable, huge desires come into our life. And Paul is warning them about that. This is what he talks about in verse 5. He says, let me, let, me, let me give you a contrast. I want you to be men and women of great self-control. Let me show you what's not self-control in verse 5. He says, I don't want you to be men and women that are giving yourselves not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not love God. Simple definition of pagans is people that don't know and don't believe, don't trust in God. So here's a little context. Thessalonica was a wild city. Like, take Bourbon Street and Vegas. If they had a baby, it'd be Thessalonica, right? Just crazy, wild context. This is so interesting because a lot of people will tell me, the Bible is so old, like, we are so much more advanced. This doesn't have anything to do with what we're doing today. We're just, like, we're way past this old book that doesn't matter anymore. Like, listen, man, Winston-Salem looks like Mayberry compared to Thessalonica. Like, these people are seeing things you had never thought of before. They're doing things that, like, we haven't even discovered yet in our culture. It's so bad. Did you know that in, in this culture, much like the city of Corinth when we did the Messed Up Church series earlier this year, there were churches dedicated to the goddess of love, where when you walked in the door, you were assigned a prostitute to worship with while you were in the temple. That's crazy. Did you know that there were no laws in the city of Thessalonica? There were no laws protecting minors. And so kids were getting abused. Kids were being raped. And there were no consequences for it. Like, there was nothing you could do. There was no law that was broken. No police that you could call. Slavery was a bad issue in this time period. And slaves had zero rights. Like anybody that wanted to do anything to a slave, it was completely in bounds. It didn't matter. Like that's the culture that Paul is to me. He says, man, I don't want you to be like the people that don't know God that are being physically and sexually and mentally and emotionally abusive to everyone. 
Like it just marks who they are. Abuse is a part of that culture. I don't want you to be like that. This is not some old, outdated book that doesn't have anything to do with our lives. This is crucial for us. I mean, we are in the same setting as Thessalonica. This is true for us today. Paul says, man, Jesus has called you not to be like that. Not to talk like that, not to treat people like that, not to look at those things, not to touch those things, not to go those places. He's called you to live a life that would be holy and honorable to God. Verse 6, he says, And that in this matter, and live your life holy, live your life in an honorable way, and in that matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. This language of brothers and sisters is uh, Christians. Like, he's saying Christians shouldn't be treating people like that. Like the same way the world is doing the whole sexually immoral, driven by lust, living like a wild person. Like That's not you. You're holy and set apart. And you're called to take the selfie and look like Jesus. Like that's, that's what your life is. That's how it should be laid out. And when I, when I read this text, it's, it brings me comfort in, in, in some way, um, but it also makes me really scared. This may be one of the most fearful verses that I've read in Scripture um, for a long time because God makes it very clear that every man and every woman is a child of God, that they were made in the image of God. This is God's creation. And Paul says, as followers of Jesus, we do not treat people like that. We do not exploit people that were made in the image of God. That is not, and and Paul says it clear, there will be consequences for, for you from God if you choose to live a life like that. So here's what brings me great, um, Man, satisfaction, honestly, in a verse like that, because I'm a dad of two daughters, and uh, I'm super protective of my daughters, just really protective, and um, you can say something ugly about me, I don't care, you can say something ugly about my wife, like, that's fine, we're adults, we, like, we don't, we probably don't even care what you say about us anyway, I hate to hurt your feelings, but if you say something about my girls, look, we got a problem, if you do something to my girls, there's gonna be consequences for that. I was sitting in Chick-fil-A the other day, minding my own business. Got my girls in there. I'm eating a piece of chicken, Christian chicken, sitting at the table. My girls are in the play area, and they're just playing around, having a good time, minding my own business. I happen to look over there, and my youngest daughter is at the top of the little stairs that you climb to get to the, like, the slide that goes into the ball pit. And I look, and there's a boy, a little boy that's a little bit older than her, a little bit bigger than her, and all of a sudden, this little boy takes my daughter and grabs her by the shoulder and pushes her down the stairs. <laughs> I immediately stood up, and like, this may surprise you, like, you, maybe you, wherever you come from, pastors don't do this, like, pastors don't say this thing. I yelled as loud as I could in front of God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the guy with the cow outfit, everybody. And I just yelled. I can't do it because I got my mic on. I said, hey! 
And there's like a two-inch sheet of glass between the playground and, 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 and me outside. But that kid knew exactly who I was talking to. Like, and I turned around because I was like, somebody's mom needs to come up here and get this kid before there's a homicide in Chick-fil-A. <laughs> and I am, I am so mad because this kid just grabbed my daughter and pulled her down the stairs. Well, I get up. This thing is escalating quickly. I get up. I'm about four feet away from the door, and I'm thinking in my mind, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the kid, I'm going to grab him, I'm going to push him into the ball pit and push him to the bottom with my foot and hold him there. If he drowns in the ball pit, he drowns. They'll find him three days later. I'm not even worried about it. I'll walk in there. That kid, I open up that glass door, that kid realized it just got real. <laughs> we were playing, and now this dad is coming in here, and, we, and he's going to talk to me. And, like, in the forefoot, it, t- it kept me to get to that kid. Like, the God, Holy Spirit, praise God, spoke to me. He's like, you don't want to go to jail, Nathan. This ain't going to be a good look for you. What about Revo? What about being a pastor? You're not supposed to be doing this. I get up to him, and I look at him, and I bend down, and I said, don't you ever push a girl again. Do you understand me? And he starts crying. I don't care. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you should have thought about that. But you didn't think I was going to come through that glass, did you? What I want to do is throw you into balls and drown you, but I'm not going to because I love Jesus. And I turn around. I'm like, some parent is going to come in here, and if it's a big dude, I'm going to have to handle him. He's going to be mad because I yelled at his son. But I was just so frustrated. I was like, you don't do that to my daughter. Like, you do not do that to my kids. And when I read that text, I'm like, man, we worship a God that is so much better than I am, that loves us so much more, that wants us to be protected, that wants us to have a fullness of life so much more. And if, if that's what I'm willing to do to some little punk that throws my daughter down the playground stairs, then can you imagine what God is willing to do to serve and love and protect his kids? And I was like, yeah. And then it crossed my mind. I've said and done things to men and women that were made in the image of God that did not honor God. I've said and done things to people and treated them in ways and said things to their face or behind their back or done something against them that was against a man or a woman that was made in the image of God. And I don't know how else you want to read this verse. But Paul says there will be consequences for that. That the almighty, holy God, the Father, will not tolerate you doing those things to his sons and daughters. And one day, I can't tell you what that's going to be. I don't know. I don't know what God's going to do or how it's going to play out in your life, if it's going to be in this life or in eternity one day when you stand in front of God. But Paul is crystal clear. God will handle business to people that do that. God will, there will be consequences involved for people that are not willing to take serious the way they treat men and women that are made in the image of God. You are not to be like the pagans that treat people like garbage that abuse them, that neglect them, that treat them like they have zero worth. Church, that is not you. That is not how we act. That is not how we talk. That is not how we respond. And I don't care what your desires are. Paul says with self-control, you can ensure that those 
insatiable desires do not turn into something that would bring dishonor to God. And that's our, that's our mandate. He closes out in verse 8. He says, Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gave you his Holy Spirit. So you may hear that and be like, yeah, Nathan, that's what you think. Like, you're kind of a prude. You, like, you don't think we should be looking at stuff or doing stuff or any kind of sexual immorality. And that's cool. You're a pastor and you're weird and you have to do that because of your job. And you don't understand the culture that we live in or the family that I was brought up in. And Paul makes it very clear. You don't have a problem with me. Like, this isn't a conversation between, well, this is what Nathan thinks and this is what I think. It's not, well, this is Revo Church's stance and this is what I think. Paul says, if you got a problem with it, that's between you and God. This is what God said. This is how we are to treat. This is how we are to love. These are the things that we stay away from and that we don't do. And here's how we treat people with kindness and respect and dignity and how our character and integrity matters and the way we speak to people and the things that we look at and the things that we say and the things that we touch with our hands. All of that matters to God. And if you've got a problem with it, you don't have a problem with me. You don't have a problem with the church. You've got a problem with God. And Paul says the Father God will handle that. So there at the end, it's a challenge. He's like, don't don't be confused. God has called us to be set apart. God has called us to be holy. God takes this stuff seriously. And that's how we're to take it as well. You're not rejecting me. You're not rejecting Paul. You're not rejecting the Bible. That's between you and God. Your attitudes, your actions, what you say, what you do, how you treat others, all of that is between you and God. I want to challenge you on this idea of self-control. You may be here and you're like, well, good thing I don't believe in God, or I don't care about what the Bible says, or I don't think Jesus is who he says he is. Man, even on a practical level, like listen to what self-control is. Self-control allows you to keep from trading the ultimate for the immediate. That's what happens. When we lack self-control, we wrap our minds around the immediate, and too many times we sacrifice the ultimate. Like when we lack self-control, we grasp what's now instead of being able to focus on what matters most in our life. Man, a lack of self-control will derail every area of your life. Even if you don't believe in God, don't believe in spirituality or the Bible. It'll wreck your marriage. It'll wreck your finances. It'll wreck your job. It'll wreck the relationships that you have. It touches every area of your life. So as you take a step back, look, which one is it? Lust and sexual immorality, or is it self-control? Sanctification, being the man or the woman that God has called you to be every day. I know you're not perfect. Every day, growing more and more to be like Jesus. I love how Paul sets this up. In verse 13 of, of chapter 3, I don't, I don't want you to hear me today saying, hey, you need to do better or be better or act better. Jesus is not about behavior modification. Here's how Paul sets it up in verse 13. He says, may Jesus strengthen and change your hearts so that you may be blameless in front of God the Father. That's the first step. The first step is not trying to exercise more self-control. It's to allow Jesus to change your heart. Because once Jesus changes your heart, you won't change overnight, but eventually things in your life will change. Your speech, your attitude, your actions, the way you treat others, the way you spend your time, 
how generous you are with your life. The mercy, the grace, the love, the forgiveness that you're willing to extend to other people. Eventually, if Jesus changes your heart first, eventually all of that other stuff changes. And Paul is building it all on that. Like first, Jesus. Then watch how he changes your life. Watch how he begins to remove barriers. Watch how you will see things differently. You will treat people differently. You will speak differently. You will act differently. Everything about you begins to change as you move forward in a relationship with Jesus. So if you're a Christian here today, you know the standard. God's called you to be holy, set apart, not like everyone else, to treat people and love people in a way that is abnormal. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you're not on Team Jesus, you're like, this is the first for you, I'm not asking you to behave. I'm not asking for you to change yourself in some way. That's not what Jesus says. He says, just believe. Just believe. Let me change you from the inside. Don't worry about what you look like on the outside. Let me do a work in your heart first. And then watch what God does. As he changes your heart and then changes your life.